Titus O'Reilly here, once again annoying you with our shameless plug for Bazaar, plus our membership program, More Mick and Me. Simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bazaar. This is where the trouble starts. It's like a party switch has flicked off. We're not here for a haircut. The hunt for the weirdest. You're blowing my mind. I can't keep it. You fact check this. There is no logic to any of what's going to happen. Strangers. Wow. This is outrageous. It's not for the ages. Things are just going to get sillier and sillier. No red flags there. Most unbelievable. Volatile. Erratic. Simple. And clinically insane. Stories to ever occur. There's a lot of our stories that start with someone fleeing money lenders. This is not the perfect preparation. In the world of sport. This is the opposite of perfect preparation. <laughs> this is the worst. Sports bizarre. You know, were you saying horse whipped as in he was actually horse whipped? Yeah, uh, he said there's only one thing for it. I ordered hair of the dog. <laughs> A rabble of vagrants, drunkards, ruffian brawlers and gambling desperado. So like the sports bizarre audience. <laughs> it's time for the leaders of the hunt. Inept at best and corrupt at worst. <laughs> it's Titus O'Reilly. And Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar. I'm Mick Malloy, and doing the heavy lifting as always, the great Titus O'Reilly. Titus, you piqued our interest last week with the history of rugby and how it's about to be canonised. Is that a way to describe it? Where we left off is obviously, you know, there's sort of the Eton rules and the rugby school rules. Yes. So we came out of all our private schools. We had all our wonderful riots, yes. which you enjoyed immensely. I loved it. It got to the point where nationally there was this argument of we need a unified set of rules that yeah. take all these different private school rules and come up with one. So they decide to have a meeting. So we're talking in 1863. We need to standardise the rules so we can yep. all play on a level playing field. Yeah, and the idea is to have one rule for, I guess, football. So this is, yeah. you know, there were the rugby rules, which was the name of the private school. And there wasn't a name for soccer or football or whatever you want to call it. So they were trying to come up with one. So in 1863, it's decided we're going to have a meeting. And there's a guy called Ebenezer Cobb Morley. Okay. Ebenezer's not a name you hear, is it? <laughs> it's kind of drifted out of favour. Yeah. I'll tell you what, it would be a bold move for anyone who threw it in, even as a middle name. Michael Ebenezer Malloy. Oh, yeah, exactly. It makes me want to have another kid just to call him (laughs) Ebenezer. So Ebenezer Cobb Morley, he's the captain of Barnes, which is one of the clubs. They tended to play sort of a almost close to a soccer-style game. Yes. And then they might play rugby-style against another team. So every time you almost had to renegotiate the rules. You're saying this depending on which ground they're on. Yeah, what the other club wanted to play and all that sort of stuff. So... He decides, well, I'm going to set up this meeting and we're going to get all the key football clubs from around London and various places. We're going to get them in. We're going to get some observers who are interested. As a bunch of blokes thrash out a set of rules that everyone agrees on that will be our new format for whatever this sport will be called. It's a sit-down. It's a sit-down. It's a powwow. All the public schools are invited as well as the uh, non-public school clubs, the actual adult clubs. Very democratic. They don't really come. Only Charterhouse sends someone. But the whole bit of this is they decide to call themselves the Football Association. Okay. So the FA, which exists to this day, as we know. They name a guy called Arthur Pember, the president. He had no history as a footballer or administrator. (laughs) Good call. But they sort of... the right man for the job. Well, they thought he was right because they were like, right, he doesn't have a foot in either the rugby-style game 
or the Eton style game. He's a black so canvas. He's a black he's canvas. coming here with an open mind. Yeah. And where, no skills whatsoever. Yeah, very much so. So he becomes the president and he hadn't even gone to a public school. So they thought, well, he's neutral. They then have this big log discussion of like, what should we do? Widths of goals, length of pitch, height of the goals. Do we have crossbar that you have to kick it over like in rugby or do we have what soccer has yeah, now? Yeah, yeah. They're going through all of this. They start talking about offside and all these sort of things. Ebenezer Cobb Morley is elected secretary <laughs> of the Football Association. So he's the one doing the power of the work. Yeah. And a guy called Francis Campbell who plays for Blackheath, who are a very rugby-style club, yeah. he's elected treasurer. So that first meeting, they don't really come up with everything. They just have all the various... Fill the positions. Fill the positions and have a general chat about what are the issues. Yeah. They need a further six meetings to start to hammer this out. And they get letters sent to them from all sorts of people sending in letters saying this is what we think you should do or these are our school rules. Think about it's like these. It's a summit really. It's a it? summit, right? It's a power. And it's just they're taking this very seriously. And no one's ever really sat down, apart from the rugby, uh, the public yeah. school where they wrote down the rules, no one's ever made up a sport before like this. Yeah. Because before this it was mob football and you played once a year. Exactly and right. You were just trying to, and you're always farming. Basically survive. Yeah, you're always farming. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you didn't have time. So yeah. this is where, you know, the Industrial Revolution's created this ability. These guys have got money. A bit of spare time. Some of them are aristocracy. Some of them are, you know, self-made men in the new industrial. So they've got time to sit around. So they're yeah. really thrashing out the rules from scratch. And so at one of the early meetings, about the second meeting, they've come up with uh, Ebenezer, our friend, gives 23 rules. Uh, Everyone can react to them. Everyone agreed on all the rules except for two. Two create problems. The first is the idea that after you catch the ball, it says that you're allowed to then, if you catch it on the full or on one bounce, you can then run towards your opponent's goal line and you can propel the ball that way. And so that becomes controversial because the Eaton style is you can catch the ball and then you must place it on, it on the, the ground, ground and, and then it. kick it. So yep. this is controversial. So this is saying basically you're allowed to run with the ball as in rugby. Yeah. The second one, it says if you did decide to run, the rule that says is any player on the opposite side should be at liberty to charge, hold, trip or hack him. So mm. this is kick his shins, run into him, game, tackle. So it very much in the Football Association rules says it's rugby. Yeah. It's the rugby rules. And this is all causes a bit of a split because a bunch of people say, well, that's not how we play. You know, we, we play. These are deal breakers. These are deal breakers for us. We play the Asian rules. We don't want everyone being injured all the time. Uh. You know, we've got businesses to run. <laughs> we've got pheasants to shoot. I don't have time to, you know. I don't enjoy being hacked. And Francis Campbell of Blackheath, he is the one that's arguing for this because he's very pro-rugby. And they win 10 votes to nine. And so the Football Association is basically set up with rules that are closer to rugby and seems like that's the way forward. There it is. Morley and Pemba, so Ebenezer and Pemba, who's been elected the president, so the secretary president, they're not happy with this. So while Francis Campbell has carried the day, they are... Very unhappy about this decision. They're in the Eaton camp. They're in the Eaton camp. 
Ebenezer says, if we carry these two rules, it will be seriously detrimental to the majority of clubs. Mr. Campbell himself knows well that the Blackheath clubs cannot get any three clubs in London to play with them, whose members are for the most part men in business and to whom it is of importance to take care of themselves. Right. So he's saying these two rules need to go. Yeah, we're not playing. Campbell of Blackheath, who's pro rugby, said, Hacking is the true football game, and if you look into the Winchester records, you'll find that in the former years, men were so wounded that two of them were actually carried off the field and they allowed two others to take their place. I say that they had no business to drop such a rule at Cambridge and that it savours far more of the feelings of those who like their pipes and schnapps more than the manly game of football. So he's basically saying what a slight. people who like their pipes and schnapps are making up rules because they're not manly enough, right? <laughs> He says, if you do away with it, meaning the two rules, it will do away with all the pluck and courage of the game and I will be bound to bring over a lot of Frenchmen who would beat you within a week's practice. <laughs> now, this wow, is the biggest insult you can give an Englishman in 1863. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to bring in the French. Yep, I could bring over a bunch of French, train them for a week and they could beat you. If the Frenchies you could have you. Yeah, they what? could have you. So they're getting into a, suddenly there's a split. So the president and the secretary arguing with the treasurer over whether yeah. they're basically going to follow a soccer style game or a rugby style game. Yeah, they're going to overrule the vote. Yeah. So this is how it happens over 44 days. They have six meetings. So by the third, it's really becoming acrimonious between the various groups, and they'd already voted to include hacking and running, but Morley and Pember, the secretary and the president. They're trying behind the scenes to get these rules overturned. They're trying to work Are on they the lobbying. Numbers. They're lobbying people. And at the fourth meeting, they actually point out that in newspapers, a new version of the Cambridge rules, as in Cambridge University, have come out and they basically ban running with the ball and hacking. And they sort of use this as a, well, you know, look, we've got a lot of us are following the Cambridge rules and they've, cut this out and this is something we think we should follow. Right. So they're trying to use that as a like, oh, it's a new development sure. that we need to do yeah. this. At the fifth meeting, a motion's passed that the two rules, hacking and running with the ball, so basically tackling or kicking, yeah, okay. tripping, is banned, banned and running with the ball. Now, Campbell launches a motion to defer this decision because he believes, and there's a lot of evidence he's 100% right, that Morley and Pember the president and secretary have organised the vote on a day when the numbers favour them. So, Because not everyone can attend all six meetings, right? So they've waited for a meeting where they suddenly go, we've got the numbers today. Campbell pulls forward a motion trying to delay the vote. And he says, if this resolution carries and you ban these two rules, we shall not only feel it our duty to withdraw our names from the list of members of the association, but we shall call a meeting with the other clubs and schools to see what they think of it. So he's very much arguing against this. His motion is defeated by 13 votes to four because he's got the numbers against him. Yeah. And basically the rules now ban tackling and flipped. running with the ball. And so basically the Football Association has got in place basically the rules of soccer. It's the template for For what soccer. becomes football, so, yeah. you know. And so as a result of this... Well, the other guys wouldn't be happy. They're not they, happy. They, uh, 20 clubs who use Kane the ball, we're not joining. So 20 clubs go, we're out. This is it. So you've suddenly got all the schools and all the clubs that want to play rugby go one way yeah. and you have all the clubs that are going to 
go on and form the FA Cup and the yeah. Premier League eventually and all these sort of things have split. Yeah. And so it was that close Incredible. to soccer or association football or football or whatever, being. never being inv- never getting up. If if they hadn't have done this sneaky backdoor voting trick. And it's become the good, biggest, bigger, most popular bigger. game yeah. in the world by a mile. Absolutely. Can you basically suggest that the games was invented at the same time? Is that fair? Well, but they come out of the exact same, same process. Same process so, of rules. And the only real difference at this point is the running and the hacking is in one and in the other it's not. Yeah. So you could catch the ball in the original version and all this is of, yeah. of the Football Association rules and they change over time to suddenly you can't touch it with your hands and everything and becomes the offside rule, all these things happening yeah. have changed. So right. you, but it just shows you we could have had a very different set, sure. a game invented, right? There were some differences. They had no goalkeepers and various things at this point. There were no forward passes at points. They kept changing all of these, but they were overall... Wall. Heading towards they have a wall. It. No, they didn't have any. It was all you know, diving. So there's was a whole diving dive, being invented. There's a whole div- goal yeah, celebrations. Exactly. When was the first goal celebration? The first man to pull his jumper over his head. <laughs> so you've got all this. So I think we'll come back one day and do a story on how the football association develops from there because yeah. basically we're sticking with rugby with this one, but they go their separate rules this bit. Now the thing uh, is, I'll put a bookmark in that one. Put a bookmark. So they publish a rule book, the FA, and then get what they want. Now, Campbell leads this walkout. The Blackheath Club leaves. All about 20 other clubs all leave. And it's basically the rugby-eaten rivalry has now split the whole thing. So during the 1860s, they start to battle it out for who is going to, what clubs and what players are going to go to what game. And it comes down to basically whether you want to kick someone in the shins or not. <laughs> it's almost that yeah. that much, right? <laughs> Historians think this actually drove them to both being successful because they had something to compete against. That's, that's so, so often the case. Yeah. It, that's what you, you like need. like added as Puma, yeah. right, when we did that. You, you know, need like, a nemesis or you need someone egging you on. That's right. Yeah. You've got to have that. So there's this big thing where they're really going in. Now, at first, it seems like rugby's going to easily win. So the rugby rules become more popular. They're far more out there pushing it. The FA, a football association membership, falls as low as only 10 clubs. And by 1866, they're complaining that they can't find people to play. Yeah. So it looks dead in the water and rugby looks like it's totally a difficult to birth. Yeah. Then what happens is the rugby side, by December 1866, they have this match between Blackheath and Richmond and it is so violent... <laughs> that they decide to remove hacking. So the kicking themselves. The uh, there'd be a lot of I told you so's from the football from association. The football so they get rid of it, but they re- retain the running with the ball, sure. the tackling. So they're still very, they're going their separate ways. But it's just ironic that this thing that drove them apart is now gone. An ankle tap is fine. You can, yeah, you can ankle tap something you can't. No hacking. They used to just brutally kick each other in the shins, as we discussed in the early ones. Like it wasn't even, and so people would end up with like splintered, Shins and stuff like this, you know, which when you're working in a factory, this is can, not what you can want. Ruin your right? day. Yeah, you, you don't get, there's no sick leave in 1860s, <laughs> which is what leads to the whole split with yeah. rugby league and rugby, sure. you know, is the payments for missing work. So they actually abandon that game and ban it. The thing that changes it a bit is the Football Association invent the FA Cup. 
and it sees their popularity explode because okay. suddenly anyone in the country can enter this enter. tournament. So by 1880s, football's exploded. Okay. Rugby realises, well, we better up our game, right? We're, yeah. we're falling behind. And so they decide in 1870 really what happens is a bunch of things happen. They're starting to fall behind the Football Association rules. But on top of that, there's an article in the Times from a surgeon and it's about the danger and brutality of rugby. And this surgeon says it should be banned in completely and replaced with association football. It's written anonymously, but it's written by someone who claims to be a surgeon with a son at the rugby school. And he says, sir, I use the expression because to my mind the game played as is played by rugby differs from that which is played elsewhere. So rugby school is still playing a harsher version than what the adults are playing, right? Mm He says, I'm a surgeon and have within the last few weeks been consulting different cases of inquiry resulting from the practice of hacking. So rugby school is still allowing hacking. (laughs) He gives his name to the newspaper. He says, I've got a son at rugby, but he doesn't want it to be printed. He says, one boy with his collarbone broken, another with a severe injury to his ankle, a fourth with a severe injury to his knee, and two others sent home on crutches, ought to be sufficient to call the attention of the headmaster to the cobble practice of hacking. A practice that have nothing whatsoever to do with the game, but which frequently injures for life and is a license for a malignant grudge. I am not a milksop <laughs> <laughs> and I do not pet my boy, Ooh. but I do protest against a system which results in injury more or less felt for life because it is a practice easily remedied and for which the headmaster is solely responsible. So he goes on and on and on, but he basically says, then the Lancet, the medical journal, responds to this letter. Yeah. And they say, we can care and think that the sooner the specialty about the rugby style of playing football is dropped, the better. It has always struck us that hacking is a dangerous and brutalizing practice. They go <laughs> on and on to argue against this. In response, Edwin Ash is the secretary of the Richmond Football Club and is a rugby style. He's basically saying, we've banned it at the adult level. This is just rugby school yeah. doing this still. Yes. But he says, it's a bad look for our game. We should meet and set up a body to oversee rugby. Sure. Because there hadn't been one. So the yeah. F Football Association established, but rugby even after that hadn't, okay. they were winning. So Who's called the shots? No one. It was just all organised themselves. So 22 clubs come together at Paul Moore Restaurant in London. One famous club's not there though, and that's the London Club Wasps. And the reason they're not there is their representative went to the wrong venue at the wrong time on the wrong day. <laughs> Another story is, though, that he did go to the right pub, but he was so drunk that he couldn't go to the meeting. Right. So we don't really know. But apart from him, they form the Rugby Football Union and they work out the rules. They don't have hacking in it. Yep. But they're running with the ball, tackling and all this sort of stuff. They still at this point don't have the number of players or anything. Like 20 can play a side at this point. They, sure. they haven't really. It's still very loose. And then it starts to get down to 15 as the standard. So they approve all of this. Some of the clubs still wanted hacking, but it gets banned out. They should bring back hacking for just one tournament or something. Yeah, yeah. Don't you reckon? Just uh, for one game a year, hacking's allowed. Hacking's allowed. I know. You'd go and see that. (laughs) Francis Campbell's involved in setting up the Rugby Football Union, the RFU, which controls rugby to this day. So he's the only person who's been involved in setting up both the Football Association and the Rugby Football Union. So he's sort of an amazing guy in this thing. 
But by the 1890s, that's now set up the rugby football union. They've become such different sports that they're now fully seen as different yeah, sports. Sure. Which is, but it doesn't take till about the 1890s where this is happening. Now, by the 1890s, the people in the north of England, the clubs up there, their workers are miners and, you know, they're working in industry yes. and factories and they're not aristocrats. They want to get paid, not salaries, but they want to get paid if you get injured on the football field, you get paid for the work you miss, right? That's what they want sure. money for. It's not an argument. And the aristocrats running the RFU say, no, it's an amateur sport. We're not doing that. And we'd be the ones who'd have to pay it. Well, Is partly that? that and partly they like it being an upper class sport. They don't initially want the poor people playing with them. Yeah. This is where, and we'll do this in another episode, but this is where the Northern League breaks away and forms Rugby League where yeah. you can pay your players. I was about to ask, when would, does it metastasize into Rugby League? It, and that's what happens is the Northern clubs, and we'll do this as thing, but this is in 1895 in, in the UK. It then spreads to Australia, but first the Northern clubs say, we're going off on our own. We want to pay players. And yeah. they go off on their whole other tangent. And then they have their meetings and set up there. And rules. set up there. So you then suddenly, before it was just all rugby, now you have rugby union and you have rugby league, basically. Gotcha. But in response, and the reason that's important is in response to the Northern Union forming and breaking away, those at the rugby school start to feel like we're losing control and at the rugby football union, we're losing control of rugby and this is a competing group. Yes. And we want to reestablish how we are in charge and the creators of rugby. Sure. So what they do is they launch an inquiry into discover how rugby was invented. And this is where we come all the way back to where we started, which is the William Webb Ellis trophy. The story of William Webb Ellis picking up the ball and running it with it at rugby school and inventing rugby has become the story. So you're suggesting to me that they've invented their own backstory. They have invented their own backstory. Well, they have chosen what a story that they Suits can hold legs. over league and say we are the um, moral arbiters of rugby, not you. <laughs> There's no talk yeah. of who invented it yeah. until 1895. The split occurs. And so the old rugbyan society, which is the old boys of rugby school, yes. they launch an investigation purely to claim the moral superiority yes. over the game. They decide to go and investigate the origins. Now, they interview the few men alive that are old enough to remember because you're in the 1890s now. It's the 1820s when a lot of yes. this happened. So they gather enough evidence to say rugby football once resembled association football, but they kind of can work out between 1820 and 1830, an innovation came in to introduce running with the ball that was of doubtful legality for some time, but, but seemed to become customary by 1830. And by 1840, it was legalized and in the rules, right? And they focus on one claim more than any other. And it was a claim by a guy named Matthew Bloxham. And he was a native of rugby, the town. He was an amateur archeologist. He was an author of a popular guide of Gothic architecture. <laughs> Since then, all his uh, archeologist finds have been Debunked. <laughs> and no one paid attention at the time. He first wrote in like the rugby old boys had a magazine. He first wrote in 1976 a letter. It was four years after the death of William Webb Ellis. And he wrote to the school magazine to say he'd been told 
he didn't say by who, yes. that the growing sport of rugby had originated when a town boy of the name of Webb Ellis picked up the ball. He put the date at 1824 and said this was when it all started. Now, this letter appears in 1876 and no one pays any attention to it. Yeah. Four years later, he writes another letter with more detail. He changes the date, saying William Webb Ellis, while playing at big side at football, 1823, caught the ball in his arms. So he says the rules at the time said he should have retreated back, but with the opposition advancing, he caught the ball and then and ran ahead. And he said Ellis, for the first time, disregarded the rule of having to drop the ball and kick it, and on catching the ball, rushed forward with the ball in his hands toward the opposite goal. So this is a letter from when this investigation yes. has been conducted from 20 years earlier mm. about events 50 years before <laughs> from a man who said he'd heard it from someone else. Yeah, it's, it's ironclad. So no one believes it, right? But the rugby investigation think we can grab onto this and use it. Yeah. And by this point when they're investigating, Bloxham and William Mellos are both dead. So there's no ability to go and read. Yeah, to contest it. Contest it. They liked the story so much because Ellis had been an English Anglican clergyman. He was a good, strong fit for this, you know, the muscular Christian sort of type of bloke. They thought it's a story that suits their narrative. It suits our narrative, right? They contact all the other old boys from the era and none of them have even heard of Ellis. <laughs> Who? They're saying, we think we've narrowed down where rugby was invented and they're all going, never heard of him. Ebenezer, of did he know Webb? None of them knew him, right? No one knew him. Because whole books had been written by this point on rugby and football's origins. No one's ever... Never come up. William Webb Ellis' name doesn't enter it in at all. The one respondent vaguely did remember Ellis, who was five years his junior guy called Thomas Harris, he said that all I can remember Ellis was he, he was a bit of a cheat. That's all he can remember. <laughs> but he said, I remember in 1928 running with the ball was still distinctly forbidden, so it doesn't sound right to me because Thomas Hughes, who wrote the book Tom Brown's School Days, which we mentioned was yes. a huge hit at the time. It was the Harry Potter of its day. Yeah. Harry Potter has copied a lot of the all those school stories, yes. St. Trinian's all that have copied this, this book. The author of that, Thomas Hughes, who had gone to rugby, he was interviewed as well by this investigation. And he said, in my first year, 1834, running with the ball to get a try by touching down within goal was not absolutely forbidden. But a jury of rugby boys that day would have almost certainly have found a verdict of justifiable homicide if a boy had been killed running in. So the question remained debatable when I was captain of Big Side, which is one of the teams they used to play at rugby in 1841, 1842. And it was made lawful later on. So he's basically saying there's no way the William Webb Ellis story is true because I was at school long after him sure. and it was still not happening. Mm. It wasn't the way. He thinks the first great runner in of the ball, mm. so ran with the yes. ball and would score, was a guy called Jem Mackey who popularised try scoring much later in 1838-39 and it was he says it was officially adopted in 1841. So this is much later, other yes. than 1820s, it's the 1840s. Thomas Hughes, the author of Tom Brown's School Days, writes in, Your committee have raised an old and warmly debated question of half a century back. Jem Mackey was the one who was the first good one. He was very fleet of foot as well as brawny of shoulder so that when he got hold of the ball, it was very hard to stop him rush. And he goes on and says, I think he's the guy that actually invented it and has much more detail in this letter. I won't read it all of what it is and he says the web ellis tradition had not survived to my day so i've never heard of it so what would be the disadvantage of acknowledging that story? so the reason they don't want to acknowledge jem mackey as yes. the creator 
One is purely it's later, so right. they would like to have it happen a lot earlier. The other problem is Jem Mackey was expelled from rugby school for an unspecified incident. No one to this day knows why, but he was expelled. So the rugby school was very much like, one, we can use William Webb Ellis, who was a a clergyman and goes back to 1820s, or we can use Jem Mackey, who we suspended and it was so bad. What did he get suspended for? This guy's used to riot. Exactly. This guy's used to state a fort yeah, and, exactly. and, and burn the joint to the ground and there was no action taken. Exactly. So they're sort of like the other theory too is Loxham, who is the guy who wrote the letters in about William Webb Ellis in the first place, had made a huge donation to the rugby school library as well. <laughs> so they like the idea of we'll, we'll honour him, we'll honour William Webb Ellis, we get an earlier date. Yeah. We get all this stuff happening, you so know. Everything this, is this works. Our house is in order, but it seems that there's far more evidence for Jem Mackey being the originator of the sport. Right? Has, has there been Wales. anyone definitively go back to contest it? Uh, like, or do we all just accept it as legend or as fact? Even now, if you go onto the Rugby World Cup site and various, you know, rugby bodies, they kind of admit that. The Webb Ellis it's, one is not really true, but the trophy's still called the William <laughs> Webb Ellis Trophy, right? They just decide basically that this is just a much better story, yeah. that they decide to believe a story that teaches of William Webb Ellis, this great boy, comes up with his innovative way of scoring way back in 1820 and goes on to become a clergyman and he's an upstanding citizen, and this is the story they decide to tell. I'm starting to get worried about a lot of history from this era. Yeah. I started to question a few. Yeah. Religion, Um, anyone? They have way more evidence it was Jem Mackey, or at least even if you don't believe the Jem Mackey, which some people argue for or against, there is almost way more evidence that it wasn't William Webb Ellis, even if we don't know who actually. And like all these things, these are schoolboys coming up with games that change every year. The rules didn't really solidify to 1890, right? So the idea that they could have been invented 10 times over and then gone back and forth each year. So the the idea that you're going to find one person who just completely invented the game. So in 1895, they decide in their minds, our claim is going to be 1820 and William Webb Ellis. Yeah. That's it. Lock the it Northern in. Union have broken away to, and they form Rugby League. Yes. Two years later, they decide to launch an inquiry in 1897 and they decide to launch an inquiry into the origins of the sport. And of their re- sport? Or of or rugby as a whole. Oh, jeez. Because they both come from well, rugby. Well, they're not going to be happy. This infuriates the rugby school. So they quickly put up a plaque, a commemorative plaque, that says William Webb Ellis with a fine disregard for the rules of football as played in his time, first took the ball in his arms and ran with it. And that's the myth that was born and it stays with us today. And that is how rugby has been invented. But tell me this, rugby still has its origins from the rugby school. Yeah, so everything we've talked about is the true origins are it came out of the rugby school. Yes. So, so they should be spread. happy with so that. They should be happy with that, but they want happy with that. You've got the credit. exactly, but they wanted a the bullshit fairy tale yeah. to uh, uh, underline the truth of the matter. Yeah. You so, own it, and it's yours. It's yeah. fantastic. But they were just so it wasn't like it just came out of nowhere. It was a full decision to make this myth up to give it more credibility in re- reaction to rugby league. Wow! But also the thing is, that's more interesting is it came out of this 
competition of who was going to control these sports in the earliest yeah. days. And so who owned the story and the myth was important back then because they were very similar sports and they were competing for the same athletes and the same clubs. And you had the Football Association going from strength to strength with the FA Cup. You had the Northern League breaking away and yeah. then rugby was very keen to reassert. Would you have lost a lot of people when hacking was banned? That's it. The game's gone soft. They lo- they so do they a lot there, of yeah. people would have they lo- There was gone, a few clubs. Oh, it's unrecognisable. Unrecognisable. If you can't hack, yeah. what's the point? I know. That's the thing. Within like three years of it being splitting from football, they banned hacking. They banned and it, you just it? know that there were people going, well, the game's gone soft within three years. <laughs> so all these cries that we have to this day are... Uh, one, Nothing new. One World Cup tournament hacking allowed. Yeah, that's right. And the thing is, this is not that surprising because almost every sport has, and we can do others in the yeah. future, but in America, the story of Doubleday, a guy called Doubleday inventing baseball is completely fictionally made up and now is admitted that he was. But at the time, it was very much seen as wanting them to claim that there was this moment the sport was purely invented and it almost never happens. What's the best? What's the best rugby movie? Is there a movie that's a union? There's the one I think it was was it Matt Damon's in it about the South Africans winning it. Oh, Invictus. Invictus, which does a neat trick that makes the South African rugby team seem almost likable, which is the real <laughs> magic of cinema. Hey, those pricks from the Transvaal. Oh yeah, well, I'd still hack if they could. They bite your ear off if you didn't tape them up. Exactly. Is that allowed? Well, that's a fascinating story, and I'm yeah. still going back to your origins in the first one of how a bunch of lawless schoolboys starting a riot, exactly, and having to be conquered by the local military. Oh, it's unbelievable! That's where I'd be going back to. Whoever's that is, they own the game. Mm. All right. Well, thank you very much once again. That's the end of a fascinating two-parter to help us out as we watch the World Cup. Watch that as you see your team go around and uh, (laughs) imagine what it could have been. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to another episode of Sports Bazaar. If you'd like more Sports Bazaar, join our membership program, Bazaar Plus. And one of the key bits that people are loving is you get an extra episode every week. Here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. I got papped once. I'll tell you that. You got papped. I got papped eating a burrito. Oh, now listen, but it's that's this, a lot. It's, it's this, I know, and what offended me was it was a private moment between a man and a burrito. Yeah, very. And private. you can see it from the pictures that I'm this really enjoying a, this my This was burrito. a love. This was a new love. It was, it was like a Tinder date. <laughs> but but I'm on. I'm in a, a cafe in Bondi, a long lens from the beach. Snap! I get rung up by a journalist. Uh, the Daily Telegraph, he goes, mate, he goes, just so you know, there's pictures of you floating around eating a burrito. <laughs> and I go, ah, this is terrible. You're also like, what I, a relief, it's I, just me eating a burrito. He go, and, he, and he goes to me, goes to me, I go, oh, mate, give me one of the photos. I'll use it on my show. It'll be funny. He goes, well, you can't because no one's bought them yet. And I go, <laughs> I go, how much are they asking? They go, 70 bucks. So I then, to produce on my own show, had to spend $70 buying a paparazzi photo of me eating a burrito <laughs> so I could put it on the show and go, look at this. This is disgusting. What a violation of my privacy. <laughs> Wait, have you still got the photo? Yes. Would you like me to post I that would, well? I think we should get it put on the Discord for our members. We'll put, I'm gonna put, we'll put it, it on a, this episode. I'm going to put it as a backdrop of my phone. <laughs> it's a private moment. I had a paparazzi moment with... Chrissy Swan, who, if you're yeah. overseas, it's a, she's a radio and TV presenter yep. and a good friend of mine. 
Anyway, one day her and I had been at some event or function and we were out in the street afterwards just having a quick chat because we hadn't seen each other for a little bit. We talked for like five minutes and, you know, then we headed yeah. home. The next day it's on the Daily Mail and it says, Chrissy Swan here with unknown guy. <laughs> It was a real uh, wake-up call to where I land. We are big fish. If you enjoyed that, simply go to the link in the show notes to sign up to become a member.